Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. Today we are in Luke chapter 12 and the parable of the rich fool. It starts in verse 13 with a family inheritance question, and then it moves into the parable. Let's look at our text. One of the multitude said to him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and divider over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The parable of the rich fool begins with a family inheritance question. A man comes up to Jesus and kind of demands, he said, you know, help divide this family inheritance. And in ancient Israel, family lands were often jointly held. In other words, if a man had a certain amount of acreage, productive land, and he had two sons, and if he, he would die, the two sons would inherit the whole thing. Uh, held jointly, and it wouldn't be kind of divided in half because in a certain sense, if you keep doing that, before one or two generations have passed, the land isn't large enough to support anyone. So this is what they did, jointly held lands. And he wanted Jesus to divide the inheritance with them for him. Now, here's just, this is my personal observation. This isn't anything I'm reading between the lines of my Bible here. This is just from my personal experience and observation in life. You really want to be careful about getting into a family inheritance dispute. It's my experience that they are so disturbing that they can permanently divide families or at least divide families for decades. And you really need to ask yourself before you get involved in a family inheritance dispute, is it really worth it? Because uh, along with the money disputes, and money disputes can be pretty fierce, money disputes in families can be even stronger, but inheritance financial disputes, there's something, there's a lot of attachments and there's a loss and your personal worth is, is maybe at stake in how you view what you should get and everything. 
I would just recommend be very cautious about getting into a family inheritance dispute. Personally, I find it very interesting that Jesus just waved this one off, and that's kind of my personal recommendation as well. You know, I, um, I'm interested in agriculture and in family farming, wrote a booklet on it, and just recently in the past month, I received an invitation to go to a new seminar. It was $1,800 for two people for two days. I thought, boy, this is pricey, but the whole seminar is what to do with the family farm, what to do with the inheritance of the farm. And there's questions like, do you give it to the eldest child? So, Because if you keep dividing the family farm, you don't have enough acreage left to make it a productive thing and support anyone. So do you give it to the eldest son or daughter? Or uh, as some people in this seminar advocate, do you give it to the one who stays and works on the farm? Or three, do you sell the farm and divide the proceeds? Now, the only thing that I can conclude, if you go to this seminar and do whatever any of the people say to do, because there's going to be differing perspectives, you're almost guaranteed to cause volcanic family eruptions. Uh, it just happens. So I don't know. I kind of like Jesus's advice, if at all possible, forego the family disputes. So in any case, in the squabbles over inheritance, we come to the parable of the rich fool. Now, you know, I guess this goes without saying, and I know most people listening to me understand this, but some people are making the mistake right now of wanting our country to become a socialist nation. And, you know, I have actually visited socialist nations like the former Soviet Union, and it's still suffering. The average person is still suffering. It's nothing to be envious of. And when the Bible condemns the rich fool in a passage like this today, it's not saying that money is evil. The Bible doesn't say money is evil. It says the love of money is evil. So we don't kind of uh, despise even riches because riches in and of themselves aren't evil. Prospering isn't evil. It's what you do with the wealth. And even more importantly, as this parable will show, well, what the wealth can do to you if you don't follow Jesus's two-word advice, take heed. If you don't take heed, wealth could do something to you. Now, before we get much further, I need to state right up front what just jumps off the page to me, and that's verse 16, because the hardest thing in the family Bible studies, I'll just tell you before, you know, what goes through my mind off the air, it's the applications of these things. Uh, there's countless commentaries and Bible studies about this and that, but you actually want the Bible to be a living document and apply it somehow to your life. And that can be a big challenge. In fact, some of my biggest challenges, but this isn't a big challenge. And I'll tell you why. It's verse 16 where Jesus, it says, and Jesus told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. Now, this was an individual man in the parable, but if you expand this, this is about the easiest thing in the world that I can think of to apply to Christians living in the United States of America. And again, 
I'm not applying this parable to we become socialist or communist or big brother government or any of that other stuff. But we do need to realize that the entire history of the world, we have enjoyed more prosperity to all classes of people in the United States than any other country in any other century in human history. And I realize that we're making some unwise decisions, particularly our rush into unrepayable national debt and everything else, but we are still the world's largest economy. We are living, I'm, I'm talking about average people, not the top one or 2% uh, kings and princes and that type of thing in the past, but the average person in this country willing to work hard and save and such, we have untold prosperity. So this parable applies to us. This is what I'm saying. This parable applies to you when you're listening to me in the United States of America. Uh, this parable applies to me. And so we shouldn't just look at this as some kind of like nice parable for back there, because this one has relevance that's front and center. Now, what happened to the rich fool uh, wasn't bad because he experienced prosperity. In our country, we have experienced prosperity. But what is likely to happen when a country experiences prosperity? And I'm going to take you to the Old Testament and show you a passage that for myself personally, and I wish for our whole nation, would heed so carefully. And it's a passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 11. And one of the reasons I like this passage in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 11 begins with two words take heed. The exact two words that Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Take heed. This is what Deuteronomy goes on to say. Take heed lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, which I command you this day. In other words, take heed because you, Israel, as a whole nation, if you don't take heed, you're liable to go off into a sinful culture that's going to lead to your downfall. And what could bring that about? Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 8, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, these things in themselves are good. But if you don't take heed, this is what it warns, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Now, do you want to hear a three-step history of the United States culture where we find ourselves today? And If you're listening to me, you realize what's going on around us. 50 million babies killed by abortion in my lifetime. 
Sodomy, formerly a crime and a mental disorder, according to the psychiatrist, is now recognized as something to be legalized as same-sex marriage. I mean, there's a lot of crazy, but here's the three-step history of what happens. Number one, you get wealthy. Now, wealth isn't bad, but if you don't take heed, wealth can do something to you. So step one, you get wealthy. Step two, when you don't take heed, you get proud. That's what exactly Deuteronomy 8 was warning about. It says your heart's going to be lifted up after you get all this stuff. And you're going to say, look at my might, my power, my genius, my this or that. Uh, rather than God bestowing blessings on you, you get proud. And then step three, when you get proud, you become wicked. That is the three-step history of ancient Israel. That is the three-step history of contemporary America. We came here. We've been blessed beyond measure. We have become proud, despite the fact that our coins say, in God we trust, a lot of times it's me I trust, and then pride comes in. Now, what happens when a nation reaches this stage? God gives prosperity. Instead of thanking him profusely, we get proud and wicked. Well, the next two verses tell us in Deuteronomy 8. And if you forget the Lord your God, I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish. That's a warning that applied to ancient Israel, that applies to present-day America, and applies to your family and mine. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 12 and see this exact pattern taking place in the parable of the rich fool. The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. What a wonderful blessing. But then he thought to himself, I mean, this guy is wrapped up in his belly button. That's as far as his thoughts go, because he says, what shall I do? Where shall I store my crops? And he says, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, this guy is so hung up on self. And this is what happens. If you are blessed with plenty and don't take heed, the pride comes and you are so self-absorbed that you become what uh, many have called practical atheism. He doesn't have God in his radar. Only thing in his radar is self. And in many ways, um, our culture has enabled the self to determine right from wrong. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's what you feel are right and wrong. You can even determine uh, who you are, a man or a woman. You just make it up, whatever you want, your will wants, my will. And where has this come from? It's come from exorbitant pride that's a result of being blessed by God and not taking heed and thanking him, but allowing pride to grow into a total self-absorption. So what do you do? Thank God, take heed, and recognizing that we are going through stage three right now in the United States of America. That doesn't mean your home has to, but it does mean that we need to be very careful and not join the parade into losing sight 
of where blessings do come from. Now, I want to switch gears, as Jesus did right after this, and he talks about trusting God for our finances versus having financial anxiety. Right after this, in Luke 12, after the parable of the rich fool, we're still talking about finances. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you shall eat, about what you shall put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And then he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap and have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. And which of you, being anxious, can add a cubit to his life? If you then are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of true confession here. And I know you're supposed to value all parts of the Bible, and in my heart I do, but I have to be honest and share with you that um, this passage has not helped me at all. Because for me, because I have experienced financial anxiety as, in fact, let me list, let me ask a question. How many people listening to me right now have had uh, financial worries, serious financial worries at some point in your life? Um, my guess, and I might be way off, just a self-projection, but I would say around 99%. And maybe a follow-up question, how many of you have severe financial anxieties right now? And uh, probably a lot of you. So I'm just going to tell you, uh, and this is probably just my fault, my little faith or whatever, but when I hear Jesus say, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, consider the lilies of the field or the ravens and God feeds them, this is like saying uh, to a scared child, uh, you bark at them and say, you know, don't be so scared. What does that make a child? More anxious and scared. So when I hear don't be anxious, when I'm anxious, it makes me more anxious. So how do you get out of this? Because to me, it's somewhat of a trap. And I don't think I'm alone in not having an easy time getting out of financial anxieties. Um, a poll of more than a thousand U.S. adults found that 85% of U.S. adults say they are sometimes stressed about money. That's 85%. 30% say they are constantly stressed about their finances. And a survey by Northwestern Mutual found that money was the dominant source of stress for 44% of Americans. So we're a little bit all over the place, but a, a large chunk of the American population is stressed from finances. And finally, the American Psychological Association says that money is the number one stressor for Americans, regardless of the economic climate or the personal money and finances available in the society, money is the top stressor. So how do you uh, have less anxiety about family finances? Well, I think it comes a little bit after where I just stopped reading. It goes on, it says, consider the lilies, how they grow, if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field, 
today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And, okay, I'm just reading on, but this still doesn't help me, to be quite honest. But then we come to the part that I think can really help. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be of anxious mind. For all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be yours as well. Now, I'd like to tell you a story because I don't consider myself um, as one who can profit from most of this teaching. I know we're not supposed to be anxious because that gets us tied up and distracted. And, and particularly if you have a family, uh, finances are a huge you know, responsibility and God brings children into your life. It's a lot of weight on your shoulders and it keeps a lot of people even up late at night and all that type of thing. And I'm just trying to be honest in sharing that I read these verses and Jesus says over and over, don't be anxious. And it's just like kind of makes me more anxious, except when I get to that last couple of verses that I read. And let me tell you why those verses make all the difference in the world. Let me give you a little history of what went on here at the Family Life Center early on in our days. Um, I, as a Protestant pastor, was a church planter. That means you start with a new congregation from scratch. You have to go raise all the funds. Our denomination was a new one, and there were no big loans available. So, you know, it was a pretty big task, and it was very challenging. So I became a Catholic and felt challenged by St. John Paul II to start something to implement his vision for family life, Catholic family life in the modern world, although I knew starting a, a nonprofit was going to be quite the challenge, very much like the challenge I faced as a church planter, and I was uh, a little reluctant to do it a second time be quite frank. I went to a Catholic family conference. I made a cassette tape. This is cassette tapes back then. And I got a shoebox for donations. I kind of very much lowballed it because I didn't want to, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to manipulate this because if God's one in it, I wanted nothing to do with it. I had a little thing with what we wanted to do in a donation box. I needed $500 to open a bank account. We got $507 or $508, so we launched. Well, shortly after we began, we started an emphasis on Catholic fathers through St. Joseph's Covenant Keepers, and we had Oh, after a few months, it didn't go anywhere for a few months, but then all of a sudden it clicked. And working here, particularly in the Catholic fatherhood movement, it was like holding on to the reins of a runaway horse and being dragged at full speed <laughs> through the wilderness. We experienced a 1,200% growth in the number of families in our network within one year. It was unbelievable, in many ways very exciting, very rewarding. And towards the end of this year, when we had this runaway growth, uh, 
started examining our finances, and while we had a 1,200% growth in number of families contacting us and we were trying to serve and everything else, our donations increased by 4%. Now, I blame this on me because I'm not the best guy in the world for raising funds. I'd much rather pursue the mission, and that's why we had the 1,200% growth in families, but not money. And we were on the verge of bankruptcy. We didn't have enough money left to even send out an appeal to say we were going down for the third time. I was standing in our kitchen, staring out the backyard, just kind of like, ugh, what are we going to do? And I felt a tug on my pant legs. I looked down, and there was my two-year-old daughter holding a cup, asking me for water. And she looked up at me, her father. She didn't have the slightest doubt slightest is he going to give me some water tonight or is he going to deny me water or I mean, is he going to let me just go to bed thir-? no just she knew i was her father and fathers give their daughters a cup of water before they go to bed and i gave my daughter a cup of water and then i figured it out even though these passages that say don't be anxious made me anxious when i got to the point that jesus says your father knows that you need them. That cut my anxiety. That God was a father. He's not an it. He's not a computer. He's not a bureaucrat. He's a father. And just as a father will go out of his way to provide for his children with their needs, and a child learns to just love and depend on a father and a mother to give them things. I mean, just look at your children's eyes. They, they're not anxious about getting a cup of water from you. Well, if you will be willing to do that, how much more will the Heavenly Father provide for you? And for me, who as a person prone to financial anxiety, that kind of broke the logjam and learned that um, it's give us this day our daily bread. That's the prayer, but you just need to remember the first part of that prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And if you kind of keep that in perspective, and this is just basically something a guy who um, even some of these wonderful words of Jesus (laughs) weren't working too well, when it came to your Father in heaven knows you need them, so you don't need to be anxious about it. And just to complete the story, Family Life Center is still here after a couple of decades after that experience and things did turn around and intercessions for St. Joseph because he knows what it's like as a father of a family. So in any case, this is Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 247 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.